Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 29, Defective Knowledge. The black vote in Detroit is higher than it's ever been, and we will determine the outcome because we've gone from picking cotton to picking presidents. Hey, Josh, welcome back. Uh, you know, we wanted to start the episode today because I think we've both found that statement by the pastor there uh, to be pretty inspiring, wouldn't you say? It's, it is a great statement of of hope and and joy and 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 just the 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 power of the ballot box and all that kind of stuff which is immediately undercut by the actual circumstances we're living in which we've now gone from living in abject terror at all moments to now toggling (laughs) rapidly second by second between joy and terror uh enjoying things for a second then realizing nothing is solved by this um so I'm, i'm trying to stay in the joy in the joy um, part of my my brain more than my uh, my heart is telling me, but man, it's tough when when you realize the scale of the problems and then the you know. Well, let me be clear here: the the actual people we elected are I, I would not say are the the most revolutionary, the most willing to see the real root of problems. Um, so, well, I think you uh, you knew you know the moment you knew that for sure. Well, maybe this is my yeah. conceit, okay? Because I agree with you. I mean. The last week, I was going to make a joke about, you know, nothing much happening in the last week. But, you know, okay, that's played out. <laughs> uh, what has happened in the last week is more like, you know, jumping out of an airplane without a parachute or something. In other words, it's been this mad rush of stimulus and, you know, conflicting, radically, starkly different emotions. As you say, toggling between, you know, joy and terror Um but I think the moment I realized in, in one of these, you know, radically altered states over the last several days is, we, you know, apparently much of the country, uh, the unhealthy part of the country sat glued to uh, media, uh, gl- uh, corporate media news on mm-hmm. television, you know, uh, in other words, CNN, uh, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that I knew, you know, at one point in that, that kind of weird algorithm of, of, of joy and despair. I knew when, when Biden made his entrance there in Wilmington, Delaware, mm-hmm. which in and of itself, I'm just going to leave that one alone here for a second. <laughs> you know, one of the, <laughs> you know, the, the global capitals, you know, of, of political seats of political power, Wilmington, Delaware. Well, if Citibank, Citibank counts as one of the centers of political <laughs> well, that, power, right? That's why I was going to leave it alone. See, cause yeah, there's all, there's a, there's a dark hole we could fall into there, but uh, when when Joe Biden, which is I think one name now, right? It's just Joe Biden. Joe Biden yep. That as as Joe Biden came out on the stage, and not only in a, in a kind of a, a jog, I felt both elation at the idea that that Trump is is on his way, but then sudden stark fear that a 77, 78 year old man shouldn't be jogging. <laughs> Don't trip, <laughs> because you know we lose him. 
He's still president-elect. Then, I don't know, Mitch McConnell becomes president or something. Yep. So I was there was terror there for a moment. But then coming out to um, the song track of a Hall & Oates song. <laughs> you were very angry Hall about that. Hall & Oates, <laughs> which, <laughs> I look, um, there are a number of, of musical scores you might pick for that moment to connect with the generation that is largely responsible for you being elected. But Hall & Oates, <laughs> it ain't it. Well, here, here's the way that music splits. Up to 19, between, we'll say, 60, well, Beatles, <laughs> like 62, 63, up to 1979 is called classic rock. And then after 1980, it's contemporary music. So by, by that logic, Hall Notes is a contemporary song that he chose. And it shows uh, you know, how tuned, he is, tuned in he is with the, uh, the kids today. I thought maybe it was because he went to high school with both of them. I mean, that's how long ago that was. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so toggling, I think, is, is the theme uh, for our time. And, and we're going to try to get a little bit deeper into that in today's uh, episode. I'm detached and I'm distracted, all keyed up but unproductive, vacillating between being all excited and disgusted, and then dozing lackadaisically in this bubble where I've made my mental home. Connection's more important now than it ever was, but I'd rather be alone. I think you have a, a quiz, though, for us, don't you, to start off? We are d- deep into our semester. You know, it's always important to to check in with our students and you know, some kind of uh, assessment to let them to, so they can know how they're doing. You know, these can be big assessments or small assessments. They can be, you know, worth a lot of points or just little smaller check-in things. And, you know, I, I haven't checked in with you in a while and haven't assessed you in a long time. So I thought I'd do a little post-election number quiz with you. These are going to be greater, lesser, over, under questions uh, to assess our, our current state. First question, greater or lesser, number Republicans or black people in Biden's cabinet. Are there going to be more Republicans or more black people in Biden's eventual cabinet? Well, again, the toggling, I, the historian in me says, please, right? right. There's going to be more Republicans. <laughs> uh, Joe Biden is a centrist. He likes to reach across the aisle. You know, he's spoken fondly of arch segregationists from back in the day in the in the Senate. So yeah, I got to believe re- Republicans at, at this point. Yeah, that's my final answer. We're, we'll we'll find we'll find out. But um, you know, he did say he thanked the African American community for bringing him this victory. He talked about systemic racism in his in his speech, and then the first um, the first rumored cabinet came out had Meg Whitman as the Secretary of the Treasury. <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll see how this goes. But yeah, I'm, I think I'm with you on more Republicans than Black people in the cabinet as the final uh, as the final answer. Question two. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think John Kasich, the former oh, governor God. of, of Ohio. Um, Ohio, who who likes to think of himself as as the conservative who has friends that are Democrats. Right. You know, I think is one of the maybe the advisors to Biden. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no he, okay. he definitely is, and he's okay. been saying some very. Uh, speaking of terror and, and and joy, he's been pushing me more to the terror side. Every every word that comes out of his mouth. <laughs> Question two. Over this is an over under. So this is I'm going to give you a number. You're going to tell me whether it's, you think it's greater or lesser. Number of flail fish wrappers in the presidential bed at this moment. Ten by it, presidential. You, you're talking about not the president elect. No, but, no, no. Uh, the current the current occupant president. of the White House. I'm putting the number of ten. You would say more or f- fewer or, or or greater than ten flail fish wrappers in Trump's mm. bed at this moment. 
That's a good one, C, because I think it would be clearly more if we would combine the presidential bed with his golf bag. Because I mm. went, I think he went through four or five fillet of fish just while playing that that uh, round of of um, you know golf the other day, right? right? As the election results were were underway. Uh, but if you force me to say, uh, I, I I would say over over ten. I think I'm with you. Yeah. All right. I'm close there, right? This yeah, it's got. I, I think it's got to be probably more at this point. The the stories say that uh, Melania and and Barron are sleeping in different wings of the White House right now, so that Trump can fully take over his wing and fill it with disgusting fast food wrappers. So, yeah, and I guess I heard from the White House staff that the uh, laundry staff that he was basically just using the uh, the presidential <laughs> sheets to wipe off his hands. Yeah. Uh, and then just discarding them on the ground. So, yeah, things aren't real good. Um, the Rage Golf and the Flay of Fish in the presidential bed. Yeah. I mean, maybe. We're going to come back to that later. Yeah. But okay. Biden might not want to occupy the White House when this is all, this is all said and done. <laughs> you know, somebody said the amount of sage they're going to have to burn <laughs> just to clear out. The, the bad spirits in the White House, oh, maybe God. something akin to like a California wildfire. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, okay. Uh, this is an important one. Greater or lesser? So greater or lesser number of mm-hmm. Trump officials who get hired at Harvard or end up facing actual consequences for their crimes? Mm. Are more going to get hired at Harvard or actually going to face consequences? Yeah, no consequences for sure um, because... The power to pardon, at least up to January twentieth, uh, he can he can do what Gerald Ford did. You know, he pardoned Nixon in advance mm-hmm. of being convicted of anything. Uh, so the presidential pardon power, I'm assuming Trump will use uh, a la Gerald Ford and pardon all his cronies, lackeys, sycophants, and ne'er do wells, including our favorite on the list, Rudy Giuliani. I assume. <laughs> Before he leaves, the White House will pull a Gerald Ford and pardon them all in advance. And thus, clearly, the number who get hired uh, at Harvard uh, will uh, be greater. Greater. I mean, there's a bonus question. Who's, who's going to get hired? Are we going to see Stephen Miller with an endowed chair in the politics department? <laughs> I wish that was a joke, but I actually have a deep fear that, the, that he's going to be legitimized and put in some position like that. I wasn't ready for that. I, no. I think I snorted into the microphone. I'm sorry. Sorry, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> it has to happen. Uh, all right. Let's take this one. Over, under, number of times I read or heard the phrase, quote, this is the essence of fascism in the past week, and the over, under is 500. Greater than 500 times that I hear the phrase or, or, or lesser than 500 times. Now, you're not limiting that to the number of times I texted it to you, are <laughs> no, you? No, no. And I'm <laughs> okay. asking you to, to answer the question from my perspective. That's the other part of this question. That's Oh, I see. Okay. Worded, it's, yeah. hard. it's hard. I have to be in your shoes here. i got to exercise empathy. Uh, I, I would say it's certainly close. And if you combine it, I'm going off script here a little bit, but I say if you combine that with a kind of and or the soul of America, <laughs> it's definitely over 500. Yeah, I mean, so I, I couldn't find a line for that in Vegas. That's why I only I only did the essence of fascism. <laughs> but uh, they did set up 500, which I think is a good number. That's a, it's a tough one. 
you know, the, the house always wins. So that's why they got to be careful where they set that number. I was going to say, and, and one more, if you wanted to add in coastal elites, <laughs> just from Mitch McConnell's mm-hmm. victory speech, you're way over 500. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Last, second to last question. Now, let's go with the last question. This will be the tiebreaker question. Okay. Because right now, you know, I don't know what we're tiebreaking, but, but it's the tiebreaker question. Recently, the New York okay. Times described Bolivian President Evo Morales' being overthrown by a CIA-backed coup as, quote, his failed attempt to keep power. So he was overthrown in a coup, and they, they described that as his failed attempt to keep power. If Trump refused to concede the presidency through January, how will the New York Times refer to his seizure of power? And the trick is you cannot use the word coup because we know they will not use the word coup in that seizure of power. Right, right. Well, that's a that's a great question, and it, and it sort of reminds me of the you know is it the Onion or the New York Times? Mm-hmm. Because you know the way the Times will do it will be unintentionally a parody, right? Right. Um, and so I think that if Trump refuses, if he if he walls himself in the in the in the presidential bedroom with his fillet of fish sandwiches, for example, and his uh, reruns of The Apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a la Howard Hughes, yeah. you know, with his fingernails growing long and his hair and, 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 and shaggy beard. That when he goes Howard Hughes, that the New York Times, and refuses to leave power, that the New York Times headline will be something like um, ongoing disagreement <laughs> over. <laughs> I like it already. <laughs> Ongoing disagreement over the proper uh, transfer of power currently marks the White House. Is that the headline? Is that the front page? Yeah. I, and I wasn't sure if I got the passive voice. I was going for something pow- passive voice in there as well. But something like, uh, yeah, current disagreement. Yeah, disagreement. I think, I think that's be. where you nailed it. It's, it's a disagreement. Yeah. Controversy, maybe. Something about a controversy? Yeah, maybe like something like an exaggerated claim to power, right. maybe. Maybe with a little something I, to, to suggest that it's kind of the Democrats' fault, too. It's negative. Yeah, thank you. There you go. <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's uh, both sides, is it yeah. right? I mean, it'll be, you know. But I, I was surprised uh, that... In, 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 in truth, first, it was Paul Krugman, the co- the columnist, the op-ed columnist, mm-hmm. or, or editorial columnist, I guess, opinion. What do they call him? Opinion yeah, columnist opinion, yeah. for the Times, uh, used the word lie and, and in reference to Trump. And he said when he went to work for the Times in 2007, he was told by all the editors that he wouldn't be able to use the word lie. And it was a problem because at the time he was writing these, these – he was only going to write on economics and business – but it was when George W. Bush was elected and was making all these, you know, these outrageous claims about the benefits of a tax cut and a variety of other things that have come to be familiar to us in the, in the Republican economic platform is that he couldn't think of any other word, you right. know, besides, oh, that that's a lie. That's not true. But he was uh, constantly overruled by his editors who would then substitute other words like unsubstantiated or that's when they right. were feeling edgy, you know unsubstantiated claim but but mostly yeah they would they would create these euphemistic terms that 
And so here was uh, Paul Krugman using the word lie. And I almost felt that it created a ripple effect for a moment there as, as Trump, for some reason now, at long last, Trump's claims about um, having been cheated out of uh, the election victory and that he won by mm-hmm. a lot, as he said in one of his, um, his tweets, that for somehow that's the final straw with the Times because, and I don't know, it was Jimmy Kimmel or somebody did a bit about they're going to issue commemorative plates for every lie that Trump told in four years. And they're basically backing up a flatbed trailer to your house to deliver the plates, you know, because there's thousands of plates. But but now I guess the Times is, has come to the conclusion that you have to call a lie a lie. But I, I, I don't know. That's kind of the theme of our episode today, isn't it? It's calling things by their names. Yeah, that naming has naming has power basically. Um, and this is this is an idea that's, you know, shows up in in popular culture, it shows up in history, it shows up um, you know, going down all the way to the to the the story of creation in the in the Bible, right? This is a story in in um mm-hmm. in Genesis, the naming of the animals is what gives humans power over over the natural world. So it's it's something that we're not just talking about out of nowhere. It's something that, you know, comes up constantly when you study history and and, you know what we're going to talk about is it's even more than just studying history studying the past studying the way that people have presented the past and presented history and what we're going to make the case is that that the way history has been told is itself defective that it's 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 part of this defective knowledge that gives the episode its title and so that's how we want to spend the rest of this this episode can i add one more question to your quiz before we go into that next (laughs) sure yeah Okay, and this relates to this business. Oh, of, you, you, know, you passed, by the way. I didn't, I didn't give you your score, but you did pass. There's a curve. I know I passed on a curve, yep. right? Uh, okay, well, this, this is a winner-take-all question. Then. If, you, if you can answer this question correctly, you get the A. Um, true, or, uh, true or false? Okay, easy. 50-50, I like it. You got a 50-50 shot at it. We here in the United States are living in a failed state. True or false? Well, I mean, Biden and, and Kamala just won, right? And they're going to fix everything, as we know. Um, I think it's true. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. And therefore, you get the A because, <laughs> as we know, whoever's administering the test gets to decide the answers. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't even be in education if that weren't the case, Josh. <laughs> it's all about the power. Yeah, I don't know. We got to get that rim shot sound effect working in here because, uh, well, look, I, you know, and, and this comes partly out of, uh, again, what we're going to be talking today, but also the, the news this morning of a uh, agreement for ceasefire in the budding war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, mm-hmm. uh, two countries that have been on uh, basically a razor's edge now for, for years since uh, I guess the 90s, the previous ceasefire really didn't satisfy the parties over disputed territory known as Nagorno-Karabakh. And uh, my understanding is that uh, for the longer run of history, that the Armenians considered that to be their territory. During the Soviet era, the Soviets assigned it to Azerbaijan, and thus the confusion and conflict between the Christian Armenians and the Muslim Azerbaijanis over Nagorno-Karabakh, which flared up again in recent weeks as Armenia 
sought to uh, achieve a kind of uh, military uh, resolution to it, but then quickly found themselves outgunned. And which, by the way, in a war that involves, I don't know if you saw this, uh, drone strikes. Of course. So, you know, not it's, it's not just for Americans anymore. <laughs> drone strikes are also in the war over Nagorno-Karabakh. And that uh, just today or yesterday, uh, the Soviets playing peacekeeper. <laughs> the Soviets? You call them the, the Soviets. <laughs> I'm sorry, the Russians. <laughs> Old habits die hard, huh? <laughs> I was having so much fun with this. The Russians, Vladimir Putin, uh, playing the role of peacekeeper, pause, <laughs> uh, decided that, uh, really on the, in, in favor of Azerbaijan, getting most of the disputed territory uh, but assuring the Armenian president that they wouldn't keep taking this horrific be- beating, you know, and that civilians would be dying. And so the prime minister of Armenia agreed, uh, which won him no favors among his own people who apparently rushed the prime minister's uh, palace and ripped his nameplate off the door of his office. And uh, I'm thinking uh, now then that the analogy here, the comparative frame is to the United States as a failed state. Can you kind of make that argument that the United States is not all that different than the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh? I mean, we got the drones, but there's more, right? We got the drones. We keep uh, exporting the uh, the killer apps, as Niall Ferguson called them, of Western civilization. He didn't mean that in that way, but it really is. The killer apps really are. Literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, killer apps, yeah. I mean, well, it's, I mean, it's hard to come to a so different conclusion, dis- I, I would say, than, than mm-hmm. the failed state. And, you know, this has been a thing that's been going around is that um, we see, you know, people in power, particularly on, on the Democrat side, uh, people within the power structure comparing what's what Trump's doing to, you know, states in Africa or states in, in the Middle East and this kind of thing. And people have been pushing back against that because, you know, this idea that that this is something that only happens in poor countries, only happens in former colonial countries is really patronizing to to those countries, first of all. Mm-hmm. It is uh, a way of of getting around the fact that a lot of times those countries failed specifically because of um, the way they were treated in the international community, particularly the American-led international community. And that, um, you know, as we look at the broad sweep of history, both the United States, I think, but also the broader sweep of, of world history, what you really start to, to wonder is, if this is a failed state, when was it a successful state? When did it actually, and by, by successful, I guess I mean, when did it actually do the things that it promised it would do? When did it actually be, work and behave in the way that its principles and, and ideologies suggest it should work? And once you ask that question, you start asking, well, is this a failed state or was it never a successful state in the first place? Well, you know, listen, I'm going to let you decide how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. (laughs) Uh, Because, I mean, I agree with your your implicit point there. You know, but but I I guess I would say part of me says it doesn't really matter. You know, in other words, it's failure all the way down. You know, it's because not only do we start, as you point out, you know, from the inception with the slave owner promising equality, Mm You know, it was marked by contradiction from the very start, right? And and so if we look at it now in our current climate, then whether it was a failed state from the beginning or has recently become one, uh, I don't, I'll, I'll let the theologians answer that. <laughs> but here's what I would say. I mean, much like Nagorno-Karabakh, 
much like the Armenian-Azerbaijan split. You know, we have a fundamental split in this country, and we like to play it off as merely partisan. But the fact is, you have a filet of fish consuming president unwilling right now to uh, recognize the results of a valid election. You have a Republican establishment likewise supporting him in that refusal. You have uh, a divided polity. We say red state, blue state, so it seems sort of frivolous and colorful. Mm -hmm. But increasingly, it's marked by, you know, in kind of a kind of intransigence, really, a kind of uh, hard divide that has in recent days uh, inspired not a few, but several calls for violence. Uh, from what I see in the media, uh, we just had a sheriff in Arkansas calling on his uh, Facebook uh, friends to go to Washington and execute Democrats. Jesus. Right. Yeah. We had Steve Bannon, who say what you want, but Bannon had security clearance for a while <laughs> in Trump's administration, calling for the decapitation of Anthony Fauci. Yeah. Uh, well, and you so had the actual strong... those guys who drove to Philadelphia, you know, with with guns to go do something in the, right. in the election office, and they got they got caught, unfortunately. But yeah. Yeah, they were headed off at the pass, yeah. as it were. But they they brought guns, and there have been armed demonstrators showing up at the polling, uh, the election, uh, you know, office in in Phoenix, mm -hmm. right, brandishing uh, their mil military style uh, firearms. So, uh, when we talk about a failed state, you know, at the very least, we're talking about one that, as you point out, cannot guarantee its own promised process. In this case, uh, anything like a peaceful transference of power that is radically divided. Heck, we can even throw in the religious uh, element if if you want, because in you know in the uh, the dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan, there's a Christian uh, Muslim uh, religious element dividing the uh, the factions. But so too here, you know, in in the United States, and we can define that different ways. You know, we. We've seen how even in a state like Utah, you know, that is defined by a dominant religious culture, the Mormon Church, uh, overwhelming, overwhelmingly voted for Trump, essentially as a single issue candidate where abortion is concerned. So the abortion divide, and not just in a place like Utah, whose own senator, Mike Lee, said that ultimately it's really democracy is not what we're fighting for mm -hmm. here. You know, so throwing democracy to the curb, for example, and I'm sensing a bit more of that in recent days, the echo of that coming up, that democracy itself is somehow, you know, the, the enemy. And so somebody like Gary Kasparov, who has lived in the Soviet system, right, is a sharp critic of Putin, you know, was saying that all the hallmarks here for a slide toward autocracy, you know, in a divided state, a failed state, are very much present. And so it's that toggling between joy and absolute <laughs> terror, between, you know, happiness and despair. And I don't want to just, you know, be a bummer here on what should be, a, I guess, an occasion of celebration. But the fact that we can ask a question like that in, in even a half-serious vein, I think speaks for itself, doesn't it? Yeah, and it really, I mean, ties into some, some bigger conversations we've been having. Uh, you know, we brought this up, obviously, a number of times now over a few episodes, but just the idea of Western civilization and the, the you know, the, the 
the success of Western civilization, the gifts of what Western civilization, whatever those are, you know, just like we were talking about with, with the American system and whether it's failed, you know, you start looking at that Western civilization and you start realizing, well, first of all, you know, to use Gandhi's old, old, uh, old quote, or at least the one attributed to him, uh, I think it would be a good idea. So that's, we can start with that, but, um, you start looking at it and, and you start looking at the supposed gifts of the civilization, the, the, the things it, it gave to the world. And you start realizing that those gifts were not granted very broadly, that certain people benefited, certain societies benefited. But, you know, looking at the Western civilization, the West from outside really highlights how narrow those gifts were, uh, were, were, were given out. And that for, for those who didn't live in one of the richer countries, who, for those who weren't part of one of the richer classes within those rich countries, Western Civ was always a failed promise. Uh, Western Civ was always something that um, existed as a, as a myth, maybe more than a reality. And, you know, you start looking through that history and, and say, well, when has Western civilization been more of a benefit than a, uh, than a cost for global civilization? The 19th century was awful you know, 10 million Congolese killed in uh, colonial violence. Um, the Herreros of Southwest Africa, the German colony, were nearly exterminated. Ma major famines in British India, killing tens of millions of people um, at, at a time. And you start realizing, well, okay, so 19th century wasn't too great. 20th century was the most violent century in human history, uh, mostly based around, you know, Western ideas, Western gifts to the world, things like nationalism, racism, artillery, machine guns. And then we get to the 21st century um, and, and, and here we are. And I, I'm still not exactly sure where I'm supposed to find those gifts, where I'm supposed to find those moments where we can extol this thing called Western civilization um, as, as something that ever lived up to the promise that its, its acolytes and its defenders um, are, 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 are you know associating with it. Well, it's such a good point. You know, in the examples that, that you give of how what, you know, scholars sometimes call, you know, subaltern peoples or colonized peoples or back in the Cold War, third world peoples, et cetera. In other words, we always created these naming devices, mm -hmm. you know, to, to other those foreign peoples. Uh, that is the other, you know, the non-Western, right. non Caucasian, if you did it in racial terms, non-Christian, if you did it in religious terms, um, but somehow convinced ourselves that because they were other, that it was just an unfortunate byproduct of, of those states somehow not catching up to, you know, the Western states. But, you know, as you know, uh, we can look right here within the United States. And when we see a town like Philadelphia you know, put Biden over the top, you know, and what was a nail biter of an election, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you have these these comments being made about people in Philadelphia by the likes of a Lindsey Graham, for example, or some of the other Republicans that that reminded me of those old terms, you know, that we applied, uh, say, in the Cold War, you know, to third world peoples as if, you know, the, 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 the mostly uh, black urban population of places like Atlanta, and, uh, you know, Philly and Detroit, that some of these were like these internal colonies, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that's where the, the contradiction of it for me, Josh, really comes, you know, full in, into full effect. And, you know, we, uh, I know we've both been reading an article 
that is influenced a lot uh, by Pankaj Mishra, uh, an Indian scholar, uh, that uh, sort of brings these truths. I, I feel like he's he's doing those of us in the West a favor by showing us a kind of mirror, mm-hmm. you know, holding up a mirror or something. And and he quoted James Baldwin, the great black intellectual of the 1960s and 70s, uh, quoted uh, James Baldwin by saying all of the Western, you know, nations, meaning including the United States, all the Western nations uh, are caught in a lie, the lie of their pretended humanism. This means that their history has no moral justification uh, and the West has no moral authority. And it was that pretended justification, that pretended moral authority that kept us for a long time as a state from believing that these, uh, you know, these destructive, ruinous tendencies, including those that occurred here in our midst, mm-hmm. here in the United States, you know, in, in places like, uh, you know, Watts and, uh, you know, L.A. during the Rodney King riots, or for that matter, Selma, Alabama, yeah. you know, or Birmingham or something, that these were somehow aberrations, you know, as opposed to being fundamentally you know, written into uh, the design of the system itself. Right. And, and you know, I mean, that's that's such a key point because ultimately the system looks a lot better when you don't include any of the any <laughs> of the people who are suffering under the system. Um, in, in that Mishra piece, he makes this really uh, powerful point, you know, about, you know, about, about this world that's coming into formation. And, and he says, you know, why would, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I don't have it in front of me, but why would somebody in, in India, why would somebody in, you know, um, Cote d'Ivoire or, or, you know, what becomes Ghana, um, why would they feel like liberal democracy is, is a good choice for them when liberal democracy is the exact thing that had been placing them under its heel for, for generations? Um, and it's, it's mm-hmm. such a powerful thing because, you know, as we've talked about a lot on this, on this podcast, there's, there's such, so much power in just shifting your perspective, uh, particularly for those of us who are white, um, who don't have to confront this stuff day to day, who have to, you know, really dig in and, and, and be willing to think about these things and, and confront them. When you hear that, which, you know, it's so obviously true, right? That, of course, people in the colonies wouldn't have the same view of liberal democracy as those who are benefiting from liberal democracy back in the home countries. Um, but but it's that mirror effect, right? That that when you look in, in that mirror, you're, I mean, it's, almost, it's like a funhouse mirror, right? You're seeing a distorted version of this world you've come to expect will look kind of clean and the lines will be in the right place and the proportions will be correct. Um, and, and, and Mishra and, and so many other authors from this, this colonized world, this post-colonial world, um, are able to show us how different these things look from, from their perspective. And, and going back to that Baldwin quote, um, you know, there's no moral justification um, left, essentially, in, in the Western, in Western Civ. One of my favorite just really brief lines from Amy Cesare, this guy we've, we've referred to on many occasions. Uh, he opens one of his chapters by just saying, Europe is indefensible. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, again, when you see it put that starkly by somebody who has suffered under this authority, under this power structure, um, I, I, you know, it's, it's so hard not to be blown away by the, by the power of, you know, to get back to our theme for this episode or to start getting more into the theme of this, this episode by calling things what they are by not allowing yourself to be deceived by the way history has been presented 
um, you know, in our in our textbooks, in our schools, and to our population, um, when you're struck with the real words, the true names of things, there's a lot of power in that. Yes, there is, my friend. And I think as we go into the next segment here, you know, we recognize that uh, maybe the first step in correcting for that defective knowledge, uh, those false narratives that make us sick, is the simplest. Let's just call things by their real names. On the 33rd day after I left Cadiz, I reached the Indian Sea. There I found very many islands inhabited by numberless people, all of which I took possession without opposition in the name of our most fortunate king by making formal proclamations and raising standards. And to the first of them, I gave the name of San Salvador, the blessed savior, through dependence on whose aid we reached both this and the others. The Indians, however, called Wanahani. I gave each uh, one of the others, too, a new name, to wit, one Santa Maria de la Concepcion, another Fernandina, another Isabella, another Juana. And I ordered similar names to be used for the rest. So that, if you didn't recognize it, is the first paragraph of Columbus's first letter to Ferdinand and Isabella uh, as he's returning back from his first voyage. And I read that because, you know, what you're seeing there is, is Columbus entering this world, entering the Western Hemisphere, the first European to record that. Um, and the first thing he does upon arriving there is take the names that existed and erase them and to rename everything. He even makes it clear. The Indians, however, call it Wanahani. He knows what they call it, and he still decides to rename it. And so right in the foundation point, right at the moment in which this Atlantic world comes into being, we're beginning with the misnaming of these places and these peoples. I mean, even calling them the Indians, called Wanahani, um, is just a furtherance of this of this renaming and therefore the, the, the power that comes from, from, from naming. And so as we kind of get into this, this next segment here, we want to talk about naming, the power that comes from naming, and, uh, you know, as we were talking about in the last segment, the, um, the need for us in our contemporary world to give things their proper name, to not allow Columbus to tell us what things are called, not to allow the power structure to tell us what things are called, but to let the people themselves tell us what they wish to be called. Yeah, and I like the fact that you started with Columbus there because, you know, this, this is the, the, the DNA, right, of our, of our system. In other words, and not just because in the United States there was that effort to make Columbus a kind of icon of discovery, you know, but, but really because that's how the process started, you know, with European arrival. In other words, it wasn't just a, a, a cultural meme. It was an actual effort undertaken in that early modern era, uh, literally to rename uh, places and people and practices. And so we're talking about the DNA of a system that we live in today. That is the kind of you know genetic founding of these uh, you know historical processes and systems that we live in. And so you know, as historians, as as we toggle <laughs> in our current scene, you know, between uh, joy and despair and, 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 you know, that sort of thing, uh, we, we recognize that so many of the problems that are playing out 
including the problems we talked about in that first segment, you know, trace their their lineage, their historical lineage back to that fundamental presumption uh, by Europeans to not only colonize these uh, places in the Western Hemisphere, these lands, these uh, these geographies and the peoples, you know, who, who were living there, but then to, in effect, completely devise a new script historically for what it would all be called uh, and how that narrative you know, would, would play out. And not surprisingly, as we've talked a lot about on this podcast, that that narrative was going to play out according to the interests of the, of the powerful. That is the, the, the material, political and military movers and shakers who presumed to have among other powers, the power to name or rename mm-hmm. or to classify in these new systems, uh, whether it be laws you know, or, or political systems generally, you know, or, or cultural presumptions, uh, that it all gets sort of scripted in those early formative decades and early colonial centuries of the history that, that we're still living in. Yeah, that's that's really important. And, and you know, you've been writing um, about this world over the last few weeks and months and sharing some stuff with me. And it's, it's really powerful stuff you're working on trying to you know, increasingly center black lives in the history of the United States. And, and one thing that's come out of that uh, from the stuff I've read is just, again, the power of naming and, and where the names come from and who they're applied to. So why don't you talk a little bit more about, about that? Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's true, you know, uh, what's in a name? Well, where these narratives are concerned, these kind of ancestral narratives, you know, of of nation states, uh, there's a lot of... of presumption by those who create these narratives initially. I mean, the, the stories themselves have a history. U.S. history comes from somewhere, mm-hmm. right? It has a moment of, a, of of inception, if you will. And we can kind of date this and put the pieces together. But from the beginning, you know, as the, the American nation itself was uh, formulated, you know, at the time of the American Revolution, and then in, in the 19th century, the age of the nation states, that the histories that were written were written largely um, to legitimize and to um, you know validate uh, the the claims of those who uh, you know politically, militarily, economically, you know uh, sort of gave form to the nation. And as a result, you know what what we see with something like slavery, because again. Slavery was central to the foundation of that national system, economically, politically, and in all ways, that the naming of slavery had to work in such a fashion as to not give lie, as James Baldwin will later say, to the fundamental moral and ethical claims you know, of those uh, who were uh, defining the nation. In other words, you know, we, we understand that as, that as Americans, we have these certain virtues that we're supposed to represent or exemplify in history, be it liberty, democracy, you know, uh, equality before the law, you know, these sorts of things. Justice is blind. I mean, you go to Washington, D.C. and read the monuments <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's it's all there. Yeah. Right. You know, but with the case of slavery, that that was going to be an interesting dilemma. <laughs> You know, because what what do you call it? You know, do you call it do you call slavery freedom? 
know, do you call uh, enslaved people free people? You can't quite pull that off, you know, and so you have to come up with other ways of either masking or silencing or erasing the truth of this system so that it can comport with that more optimistic narrative we were saying. And one of the things I've been looking at then in terms of, of naming is actual names. Because what happens in the in the U.S. history narrative is that basically, you know, uh, those who are enslaved from the very founding of the, the first colonies, essentially, you know, are, are just in the aggregate referred to as slaves. So a name like slave itself becomes, you know, uh, a convenient way of not only grouping all these people together, but under a label that is rather generic and non-specific, and uh, sort of implies its own, you know, sort of uh, lack of agency as far as being historical historical actors. In other words, you have historical actors that are leaders, the great men of history, but then you have slaves who are just this sort of aggregated, you know, impersonal, almost non-entity. Uh, that is then becomes kind of like a chess piece in somebody else's, you know, historical game. Uh, but what you find when you start doing the research is, you know, as I've been uh, so interested in, in, in you know, in, in going through, is that historians for a while now have gotten down into the granular, Josh, you know, the, the actual literal naming of people who are enslaved in, in these systems. And and so when you say, well, what's in a name? Listen, somebody we both like a lot is Saidea Hartman, mm-hmm. who is, uh, you know, an American scholar uh, at uh, Columbia now uh, University. In fact, she was just given the, the, the title of university professor, which is a very rare and distinguished title for any academic at Columbia to have. Uh, she's been the recipient of, uh, you know, the MacArthur Grant, the so-called Genius mm-hmm. Grant, has written pretty prolifically on a variety of issues related to uh, African-American identity and history and some really powerful work. And, and you know, she did a, a piece, a book, actually, a, a few years back in which she said she, she traveled uh, to Ghana uh, to the old slave forts of the Ghana coast, the Gold Coast, you know, to try to find, if she could, some tangible connection in terms of her own family's history, a kind of uh, Alex Haley um, odyssey, if you will, to find identity in her own genealogy and ultimately writes about how that proved to be this this sort of frustrating, uh, at times fruitless, uh, kind of quixotic endeavor, but also ultimately, you know, quite quite enlightening because what she says in her writing is that the classic figure of the slave is that of a stranger. Mm torn from kin and community, exiled from one's country, dishonored and violated. The slave defines the position of the outsider, close quote. And so, uh, I don't know, what do you think? That's a pretty eloquent way of defining what we were saying earlier is the tendency of these narratives to create the figures of the other, that is, people who in some way or another are not named appropriately within these narratives it's such a powerful it's such a powerful thing and you know that that idea of the outsider the idea of the stranger you know when you start thinking about the construction of of the americas in this post-columbian world um 
you start, you know, getting back to names a little bit, you start looking at the, at the names of places. And so, you know, something I'll, I'll talk about in class sometimes is you think about the plantation societies that are, that are created in this, in this system. You know, when you go to, the, to North America and you get to the, the northern of the 13 colonies, we, we use this phrase New England, right? Because ultimately, those colonies were meant to, and, and it really did in many ways, mimic the old society of England in so many ways. But you get into the Caribbean, and you're not calling things New England down there, right? You're giving things, these, these societies a, a totally different name because the intent was never in the Caribbean to recreate the society of, of the old world. The, the intent in the Caribbean was always to construct these entirely new kinds of societies, which would serve a very particular purpose. You know, and in, in that way, when you think of these strangers, the enslaved people as, as strangers, as outsiders, on the one hand, they are abused and oppressed and they are dehumanized, all this kind of stuff. But on the other hand, when you put together all these outsiders, all these strangers together in these plantations, in these societies, what you end up with is a, a kind of creation, right? That, that through their, their outsider status, through the, the fact that they're strangers in a strange land, through the fact they've been ripped out of their culture, their families, their homes, they now have this incredible power, really, to construct something new. Um, and I think that constructive aspect is, is what you've really been focused on with a lot of, of, of your work uh, that you've been doing over the past few weeks and months. Definitely, definitely. It's well said. And, and, and the, the work of construction you know, where, where something like a historical narrative is concerned or a story, mm -hmm. a storytelling, a story form about the past involves in this case, really not just the amending of that more familiar standard version history, uh, you know, the U.S. history narrative as, as we all are very familiar with, um, <laughs> you know, whether it's in going to Disneyland and seeing Abraham Lincoln or sitting in a you know, high school history class or hearing a political speech, you know, uh, it, it's so in the, almost in the pores of the country, the culture, that people know things about the standard version of American history. They don't even know why they know it. They just know right. it. You know, so Lewis and Clark, you know, or Alexander Graham Bell. I mean, these these things just become emblems in our cultural memory. But when we talk about creating a new narrative, what we're really saying here is unmasking those who have been masked, unsilencing those who were silenced. Because not only were all those things true that you talked about, uh, you know, all those treatments and violations and, and uh, things done to these these subject peoples, but, but to add insult to injury, then when the story got around to being written, they were just masked off under these rubrics like slavery, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and worse than particularly where names are concerned, as I'm going to mention here in just a second, you know, uh, condescended to, you know, or in the racial imagination of, of, the, of the white sovereignty story, you know, kind of lampooned really, mm -hmm. you know, and so when you think of, of things like Sambo, yeah. You know, like Little Black Samba. Well, you know, that name becomes emblematic of a kind of racist caricature, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but Samba was, a, was, a, was legitimately a West African name that had an entirely different meaning. But because it was foreign to, say, English-speaking slave owners and they heard it and they could pronounce it, it just became emblematic of their caricature of the degraded enslaved person. I'll give you a couple more examples like that here in a second. So in part, what we're trying to do here in recentering the narrative is this work of historical excavation 
to recover original names and original meanings. And the article that I want to talk just a bit about that I came across uh, is by a team of, 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 of scholars, a couple of anthropologists and a historian uh, led by uh, a woman named Sarah Abel, who was a, a Cambridge uh, student who's now at the University of Iceland. She's an anthropologist, uh, along with her colleague, uh, Gili Paulsen, also on staff at, at uh, University of Iceland. Uh, and their uh, collaborator here was George Tyson, who's part of a group called the Virginia, or excuse me, Virgin Islands, Virgin Islands Social History Associates. So he's a historian that works mostly in West Indian history. So Abel, Tyson, and Paulson, this is the team that put together this article, and it's called From Enslavement to Emancipation, Naming Practices in the Danish West Indies. And it, I was immediately attracted to it because the Danish West Indies, first of all, the way we, we, we border off U.S. history is that anything that is outside the 13 colonies is somehow other, mm -hmm. somehow foreign, but one of the things that History Against the Grain, of course, is committed to is taking borders off history and recognizing the artificial nature of that kind of sequestering of histories in those political borders. Uh, and as it turns out, the Danish West Indies, which, by the way, now is the U.S. Virgin Islands because the United States purchased these islands and the people who live on them from uh, Denmark uh, in, uh, when was it, uh, the early 20th century, I want to say, I could be wrong about that, but uh, they became a U.S. territorial possession. But before that, it had been part of the Danish West Indies, but were mostly English-speaking. That is, most of the people who live there in these, uh, these colonial uh, settings, um, St. Croix, St. Thomas are the two best known. Uh, these were essentially plantation colonies, right, and brought um, not only African enslaved African people, but also a lot of English-speaking enslavers and plantation owners uh, into the uh, network of those islands. And so there are many, many connections, despite the artificial political boundaries that separate them, many, many uh, real material connections, cultural connections. And so I was, what they did is they based their study on more than 1,500 recorded names found in a set of 18th century records uh, on St. Croix. And uh, basically what they they went forward with from that point is to show how the names that showed up in these records, these are names of enslaved people now, how these names that showed up often uh, representing a, a kind of pattern, you might say, a familiar pattern of naming that was common to both uh, certain West African ethnic communities as well as what then become uh, either Creole or uh, Afro-Danish communities, uh, such that they could discern the thing that the narrative usually tries to silence or mask, and that is a full sense of self-identity and personhood, in other words. Uh, mm -hmm. Because, you know, Josh, I mean, the problem with these narratives that do all this masking, right, and silencing and erasing, is that when you apply a label, uh, apply a label like slave, then the person, the sense of personhood and personal identity just gets lost, right? Yeah, and that's something uh, Hartman talks about, that, you know, that she would read all these, these accounts of, you know, like slave ships and stuff like this, and you would just get kind of people on the margins. They often wouldn't have names, they wouldn't have personalities, and you 
you know, so so part of what she she's tried to do is, you know, some people accuse her of fictionalizing this past, but she says she's trying to she's trying to find an avenue into exploring these these stories in a way that our our traditional narratives don't. Yeah, I mean, Sadia Hartman's one of those who's not afraid to run right up against the boundary of what would we call it, sort of empirical, historical, right. and uh, more sort of literary kind of interpretive imaginative or something. Um, and I personally, I mean, I, I, you know, I think, you know, we're historians, right? So we, you know, we, yeah. we want to, uh, the first thing we learn somewhere along the way is that, you know, the difference between history and literature is we can't make it up and they can't, you know, but right. uh, I think what this speaks to and what Sadia Hartman's uh, speaking to is the need to think imaginatively about the evidence that we do have. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and there's some good precedent here. I mean, historians like Carlo Ginsburg or Natalie Zeman Davis, for example, have done these kind of micro histories on otherwise very hard to reach through traditional evidence, hard to reach lives and stories of personhood. And so these researchers, you know, are very much following in that path. And as some like Sadia Hartman talks about it, what it means is that you often have to read against the grain because in reading against the grain, you're taking evidence that wasn't intended for this pur purpose originally, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. when they created these church baptismal records, for example, on St. Croix, you know, they weren't thinking about historians of the future trying to identify <laughs> personhood or something in these enslaved people. They were just making a matter-of-fact recording of the individuals who were baptized. But here we come along and we say, yeah, but there's, there's an opening there. We can get a glimpse you know, by reading against the grain of these documents, we can actually reconstruct something of personhood. So let me show you what they or Let me tell you about uh, then what they came up with uh, and how it relates. So as I say, they find naming patterns that even suggest an ongoing or continuing carryover of West African uh, traditions. You know, that's a big, a big, big question for historians of slavery, you know, as to what extent do African cultural uh, influences survived the transit of the Middle Passage and the brutality of enslavement? Or to what extent are these people simply, you know, like a, you know, a memory board in a computer just wiped clean of their old identities mm -hmm. and, you know, starting over from scratch? Well, as it turns out, you know, there, there are elements of both for sure, because you can find African identities here. In some cases, you just see African names in the baptismal records of St. Croix, which is interesting because remember, a slave owner had a perfect right to, in effect, name uh, an enslaved person, right? That is the enslaver conferred names that often took mm -hmm. place on inventory records of property and estates, um, you know, uh, death records, inventory records from death, you know, estate records, those kinds of things, tax records. You see that it seems that part of the presumption of, of enslaving in this system uh, was to have a kind of what godlike power, you know, to rename persons. And, and, yeah, and to, just like Columbus. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so these are, we'll call them enslaver conferred names or for short slave names, right? Mm -hmm. But it wasn't that simple. And that's what these records show because when you see, for example, emerging from these lists, African names that include 
And, and one of the ethnic groups, Josh, I'm interested in are the Akan, the Akan speakers, right? Which mm-hmm. co- who come from mostly what is now modern day Ghana, yeah. and what they used to call the Gold Coast, because there was an especially sort of tight knit cultural identity to the Akan people. And Akan was a kind of meta ethnicity. I mean, there are many sub uh, types and, and dialects and such, but they form a recognizable kind of ethnic grouping. And so you see Akan, what are called day names, still mm-hmm. recognizable in various spellings. So on the list, they read like names like Kwako and Kwamina and Kojo. These are Akan names and they appear on the list. Uh, now, a large number of British sugar planters lived in St. Croix. As I say, in English was the common tongue, but when English enslavers recycled African names, either because they were too hard to pronounce, you know, or too unfamiliar, or they thought they, well, let me give you an example. So, for example, a, a con name like Kojo could just be rendered Cujo, C-U-J-O, mm-hmm. Cujo, or even shortened to more English sounding, just Joe. Yeah. But they nevertheless preserved a marker of a con identity when they did that. Uh, in this mm-hmm. case, a kind of tacit recognition of African presence. So even when the names weren't in their sort of original African uh, form, even when they had been altered maybe by slave owners, they still left almost like uh, the example would be like fingerprints or something in the record that shows a kind of original ownership of identity. So as much as they thought they could erase those identities and remake them in their own image, clearly things like naming practices uh, continued even in altered forms. So these historians found evidence then that African names could be long remembered, uh, even when they were rarely used. And this is what I thought was very fascinating. So, for example, in advertisements posted in colonial newspapers for runaways, so-called runaway slaves, right? Mm-hmm. Enslavers would advertise for the return of an absent servant by listing a number of so-called aliases because the you know yeah. the enslaver wanted this person returned so he had to provide as much information about the person as possible and so became a kind of unintentional witness to the fact that enslaved people maintained their own identities because now those identities are forming as as aliases in these advertisements so among the more than 90 alias names for example offered in the runaway ads that George Tyson looked at he identified several African names like Kwamina and Cujo, for example. In other words, what that suggests is in that when they were out of the slave enslavers' immediate proximity, you know, when they were in the quarters or amongst themselves, uh, what did they do? They continued to use names of their own choosing, including names that bore African memory and personal personal significance to the uh, to the enslaved people themselves, but which were probably only belatedly, that is names belatedly acknowledged by the enslaver. And they gave mm-hmm. one really interesting example of a man named an enslaved man named Cujo Lewis. So here you have a kind of English Welsh surname, right, paired with an African name, and there was a fair amount of that too, a kind of Creole blend, you might say, between European and African or, or you know, African names made to sound more English, that kind of thing. But Cujo Lewis, they actually had a testament from him. He said uh, that only in moments of personal prayer did he recognize himself by his African name, 
which he said was Kosula. And mm. he identified that as a name that, as he put it, came from across the water, right? So, you know, we're prying open the locked doors of identity here through these, these baptismal records and, and runaway slave ads. We're prying open that door. We're excavating from the sub-basement, you know, of this narrative. These names, which betray what? They betray personhood and identity, right? And they also suggest that these individuals were making their own decisions how about, about how they identified certainly with each other, you know, however they may have to conform to whatever slave name prejudice and enslaver might have. That didn't mean that they necessarily accepted those identities. And thus we can say that the whole idea that these individuals could be masked behind a simple generic term like slave somehow be, you know, um, rendered without personhood or something is something we should automatically uh, suspect. So uh, lots of interesting examples like this. And I want to give you a final one of this kind of self-naming or preserving an identity through naming despite the prerogatives of a slave owner, right, or an, or an enslaver. So there's another Danish historian by the name of Louise Sibro who this particular study cited, and then I did some checking on her. She works for the Danish National Museum, and she's really done more than almost anybody in these archives to really ferret out these interesting, we call micro-histories that people like Carlo Ginsberg and Natalie Zeman Davis, you know, sort of, we used to say, right, Josh, you know, the history of a people without a history kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, something like the French Annal School historians were famous for doing, kind of rooting into the social history of these, these subaltern spaces, these sequestered spaces within these systems of power and sovereignty. And it's usually just that power and sovereignty that finds its way into the records or, or certainly into the narratives. But we excavate our way, we find through the cracks and the glimpses these micro-histories. And the one that Sebro uh, came up with that I want to tell everybody about was a woman an enslaved woman named Dama, D-A-M-A, who was born in West Africa in what she identified as the kingdom, kingdom of Popo, which is in present-day Benin. Now, Popo was actually a name that the Europeans gave to it. So there's a lot of that sort of thing, right, where you're, you're excavating past names that belong ostensibly to these African places and people, but on further examination turn out to be names of convenience that Europeans seized upon, for example, right? So like a lot of the, the Akan people were called in the English records, Coromante. Well, they didn't call themselves that. Coromante was the name of one of the slave trading forts on the Gold Coast. They didn't call the Gold Coast the Gold Coast either. That was a European <laughs> really? uh, contrivance, right? Um, but nevertheless, in what is present day Benin, she was sold into slavery around 1699, the year 1699, and transported then in the Middle Passage to St. Thomas, um, you know, this one of these Danish West Indies colonies, right? She eventually became a free person. During her time, however, as an enslaved laborer, she was known by a different name, not Dama, that was her African name, the name she was born with, presumably, but Marata was her enslaved name or slave name. But then after gaining her freedom and being baptized, and she shows up in the record, she went by the name Madlena. 
So three different names reflected three very different phases of her life, right? Free in West Africa, she was Dama, a native speaker of the language of the West African dialect, Gibe, a regional language family that was neighbor to the Akan languages and the larger language family of West Africa. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. While enslaved in the West Indies on a plantation in St. Thomas, she began another cultural transformation, learned the elements of the new Creole languages spoken by those around her, right? In the Atlantic world, a patchwork of African, uh, Danish, Dutch, French, and English. These Creole kind of patchwork, uh, sometimes called pidgin languages or Creolized mm -hmm. languages. Well, in, in that context, she was Maratha. But once freed from her enslavement, her identity shifted again. And as she learned to read and write, actually, I'll tell you why we know that in a minute. She actually married a free person, embraced Lutheran Christianity. There were a lot of missionaries on St. Thomas, these sort of Danish and Dutch missionaries. She converted to Christianity and with her baptism became Madlena. All right, so these various identities exist independently of one another. The question is, did each one cancel out the previous? Or did they coexist and blend in her life as different parts of a whole identity? Now, fortunately, in this case, as Louis Cipro pointed out, we have evidence drawn from the subject herself. Usually we don't have that, right? You know, we only have some record that was kept by a church, usually by a white parishioner or some slave mm -hmm. owner, you know, who's uh, taking records for inventory or something. But in this case, we have testimony from the subject herself testimony we might say from behind that mask of slave and the evidence comes in the form of a letter she wrote a hand written letter done by madlena herself addressed to the danish queen sophie magdalene nonetheless hmm. who was a sort of a royal figure of high personage in not only denmark but but norway she writes the queen a letter requesting instruction a handwritten letter on how best to serve Lord Jesus. So basically, you have the testimony of a convert, a formerly enslaved woman born in Africa, who's now petitioning the Danish queen. And if we read <laughs> against the letter, it gets very interesting, because on the one hand, it seems very straightforwardly to be what it pretends to be, a kind of supplication or, you know, a, a, a petition for response on how to best live a Christian life or something. But there's always something slightly subversive in these things, too, right? Because here's an enslaved woman asking the Queen of Denmark how to be a better Christian. Would you say that maybe there's some subterranean irony in that? I sure hope so. <laughs> maybe like what? Like free the slaves? Yeah. <laughs> if you want better Christians? <laughs> she didn't just want to write hypocrite in red. Exactly. Like, Isn't that Across lovely? the letter, yeah. So, so here was a letter from a woman once enslaved addressed to another woman of much higher social, political, elite standing, sovereignty, actually, in effect now asserting her own uh, self-sovereignty, right, as an identifiable person with a remarkable history. And, you know, perhaps most interesting, and here's the, the, the clincher, okay, you'll like this, is that she wrote the letter twice in two mm -hmm. different languages. Once in the island's Dutch Creole script, but the second time, guess what language? I have, I have no idea. Well, come on, Josh. There's going to be a quiz after this. <laughs> I already have my quiz, man. You could have guessed 
her native West African Gibe language. Wow. She wrote it in using the Danish script or Dutch Creole script, wrote out the African words. That's amazing. Isn't that remarkable? And in the first letter, she identified herself as Marotta, now Madlena from Popo in Africa. That's how she signed mm -hmm. off to the queen. In the second one, she wrote in her native Gibe language, she identified herself by her African name, Dama. So, you know, by that point, freed from enslavement and a Christian convert, she opted to convey the cultural uh, and one might say, I guess, linguistic fullness of her identity, including the African birth and heritage that endured through decades of life across an ocean in slavery, in freedom in the Atlantic Creole sphere of St. Thomas. Uh, her enduring self, we might say, her sense of personhood, her identity, her subjectivity, her full dimensionality as a human being was signified uh, in these ways through the passages of her extraordinary life. And these names conveyed then not only her African and Creole experience, but also woven together in this tapestry of identity and lived experience, uh, really a full measure of her self-identified uh, personhood as well. So yeah, how do we re, let's just recenter these narratives. I mean, how do we create narratives now that do the honest work of naming, but really, you know, more than just a name, right? Starting certainly with that as a first measure, but fleshing out then the real stories, the real lives, the real agency, the fullness then of the people who are otherwise uh, erased. Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing account. And it's really, you know, it's a testimony of what we're talking about that we're not just making this up that, that naming is important, that what we call things is important. Clearly, these plantation owners understood this because I'm sure they had other things to do other than come up with names for every enslaved person born on their plantations, right? Um, and then you also, you know, you think about this relationship. There, there's no more unequal relationship than between one who claims ownership and one who is owned within the system. And yet, even within that relationship, what this, these naming practices suggest is that continual effort of resistance, that, that despite how unequal this relationship is, despite the degree of power that one person held over another, even in circumstances like that, resistance continued. And out of that resistance comes, you know, creation essentially comes this new world that's being defined and built and understood, not just from, you know, white folks imposing things on, uh, on the enslaved, but on the enslaved themselves building and, and, and again, creating a world of their, of their own. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's so powerful in, in that sense. And it, it again, speaks to the power of identity and the, 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 the desire to craft one's identity, even within these power structures that seek to deny that identity and deny that agency and deny that creative force, I guess. Very well said, you know, and I can't help but think about our contemporary world and this recent election, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham, the South Carolina senator, was one of the first to alibi uh, for trust, uh, Trump, right? And, mm -hmm. and with regard to Philadelphia, you know, said, you know, Philadelphia is as crooked as a snake. And you know, these are dog whistle. To, right. to me, these are dog whistle statements by these right wing, you know, politicians, white male politicians 
as tr- as Trump, I mean, Trump says the quiet part out loud. He just refers to things <laughs> like inner inner cities and, you know, right. that it's all a way of sort of, again, masking the fact that in these uh, areas that are created, by the way, by, you know, a system of racial segregation and intergenerational poverty and such, um, the so-called inner cities, that they're really racially masking them and equating them with, in this case, corruption, uh, malfeasance, you know, voter fraud, you know, all that kind of stuff. And to me, that is, that is a direct legacy of, of how these narratives were first crafted in their, their misnaming and arrogant naming and presumptively naming and, 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 uh, and denying real names in many cases to those who in fact had agency, had identity, had personhood. You know, you, it's like stacking, it's like stacking the deck, isn't it? Yeah. We can go back to, you know, this desire of, of Republicans to basically cast all black votes as, as illegal votes, right? I mean, that's ultimately what they're saying when they focus on Atlanta, when they focus on Philadelphia, when they focus on, on Detroit. What they're essentially saying is that black votes are illegitimate votes. And to that, the, the pastor we started with, Dr. Uh, Dr. Steve Bland, you know, he's he's seizing that that power back. That's what he's trying to essentially say is that, you know, we are we are people, our votes matter. And that even in the system that's stacked against us, we're still going to continue to, to fight, continue to work and continue to try to get our voices heard. And as of now, you know, that has to be through the ballot box. But, um, you know, as we've talked about through this episode, this is a system that was never meant to be fair. It was a system that was never meant to serve everybody. It was a system that was built, you know, on the backs of particular kinds of exploitation. And, you know, it's just, I think that maybe as, as a way of going out, we can feel joy for, for the Trump's loss. We can feel joy if you want that it was Biden and Kamala Harris who, who, who won, but don't let that joy get in the way of, of the understanding that the work is not done. Um, the work is not done both in a political sense, but I think what we're also getting into is that just our, our broader ways of thinking about our world need to change. We need to call things by their names, call things by their true names. All right, so let's get to our outro segment so we can maybe sum up what's in a name. Tax the rich and feed the poor till there ain't no rich no You know, one of the uh, writers I like a lot, contemporary writers of a political and cultural scene in America is Rebecca Solnit. And I've talked mm-hmm. about her uh, before on History Against the Grain. But she had a book a few years back whose title was Call Them by Their True Names, American mm-hmm. Crises and Essays. And I want to read just a quote here um, from Solnit's uh, forward to the book. She says, naming is the first step in the process of liberation. Calling Rumpelstiltskin by his true name makes him fly into a self-destructive rage that frees (laughs) the heroine of his extortions 
And though fairy tales are thought to be about enchantment, it's disenchantment that is often the goal. Breaking the spell, the illusion, the transformation that made someone other than herself or himself speechless or unrecognizable or without human form. Naming what politicians and other powerful leaders have done in secret often leads to resignation and shifts in power. And I like that a lot. And you know who I was reminded of? Again, we're talking about the contemporary scene. This sort of, you know, uh, the disenchanting of false narratives, you know, by using, as she says, using true names. Is our new vice president elect mm-hmm. uh, as the first uh, woman of color, uh, specifically the first black woman, South Asian or Indian woman uh, to hold this up? This is quite a historically significant milestone, I would say, however belated, you know. But one of the things we've seen, Josh, and, and you'll help me if you can remember who some of these smirking, I want to say maybe Steve Scalise, the guy from Louisiana, the Republican Trump acolyte mm-hmm. from Louisiana. Uh, and another uh, one in recent uh, public statements, maybe on, they're on Fox or somewhere, you know, these people hang out, is uh, deliberately screwing up Kamala's name, yeah. right? Kamala Harris's name. Uh, by making a kind of joke out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what I think you and I are talking about, and I know you're going to finish with with a really p- pretty cool uh, quote of your own on this score, is I, this idea of Solna, you know, let's, let's disenchant these false narratives, you know, let's render them once again, truthful. Yeah, and that Skullnet piece is, I mean, that, that quote you gave us, so good. And, you know, when I was thinking about, you know, we said we were going to do this episode on na- and naming, I had a kind of, my memory was jogged going back to high school. Our, our English teacher had us read um, Ursula K. Le Guin uh, in her Earth, Wizard of Earthsea. And I hadn't read it since high school. Um, but I remembered that so much of that book was about the power of name. So I went and looked into it and I found a, a, a shorter story she wrote called The Rule of Names. Uh, which is set in the same world and, and talks about this. So I just want to read this passage here. It says, When you children are through school and go through the passage, you'll leave your child names behind and keep only your true names, which you must never ask for and never give away. Why is that the rule? The children were silent. The sheep bleated gently. Mr. Underhill, Underhill answered the question. Because the name is the thing, he said in his shy, soft, husky voice. And the true name is the true thing. To speak the name is to control the thing. And so as we go out here, this episode has been, in many ways, us trying to process our feelings about what's been happening in the world over the past couple of weeks. You know, I, I fear a little bit that, you know, we went dark, certainly, a little bit, um, that, you know, we might sound pessimistic or, 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 um, or too negative, you know, given that people are experiencing profound joy right now, and I don't want to undermine people's joy in any way. So I do want to end with another quote that I found from Ursula K. Le Guin. This came later in her life. She was given an award and she gave this, this speech. And I just want to read this, this last passage um, just as a ray of hope as we, as we go out here. She says, quote, We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. But then so did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art, very often in our art, the art of words. So this has been History Against the Grain, episode 29. 
and we will talk to you again next week. Take care. Nobody.